Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Good evening and welcome to it. Mm, Public Enemy. We are live, interactive, coast to coast. Produced by the great Chris Houseelt. The mighty Thea Harper produces our show out of Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan this evening. So great to be with you. It's been a very busy day, friends. It's been crazy. I hope you've had a good week so far. You're so there. You're so there. You're almost at the weekend. As the great George Clinton said, it's always better by Thursday. And for the next three hours, we'll be taking your calls and making sense of all the Michigas at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. We got a great one tonight. Ivy Scott is going to be with us. She's a crime reporter for the Boston Globe. But they pitch us up reporters from the Boston Globe all the time, and they have lots of good writers. We're always happy to have them. But she's doing something very interesting. She's a criminal justice reporter, and she focuses on the state courts in in Massachusetts and the state attorney general's office. But this week, she's joining Boston Globe's advice columnist. That's Meredith Goldstein. And Meredith Goldstein does a relationship podcast called Love Letters. So this is the coolest thing I've heard of in ages. Ivy Scott, the criminal justice reporter, is taking over the Love Letters podcast for a couple of days for three episodes for a series called We Found Love. And it's the stories of three different couples at very different stages in their relationships. Maybe uh, couples they are just like every other couple, except for a very interesting distinction. Um, These three episodes of the Love Letters podcast are all about women who fall in love with men in prison. And what that's really like, what the relationship consists of, how they have committed loving relationships that are mostly on the phone. Uh, It's really, really fascinating, quite moving and uh, more than a little bit controversial. I mean, the series is about women in romantic relationships with men who are in Massachusetts prisons, but not just any men. It's it's men who are serving life sentences for murder. And in every case, the man was already incarcerated for something he did when he was very young when the romance began. It's if you've ever wondered about not dating in prison, but dating someone in prison, this goes a lot deeper than all the tragic young people writing love letters to the Menendez brothers and Jordan Vandersloot. Also tonight, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show our wonderful uh, First Nations Indigenous panel with Simon Moya Smith and Julie Francella, which uh, has become so popular with our listeners. I think we're I think we're uh, moving to weekly. I think we're going from every other week to weekly. So we're really thrilled they're going to be here. There's of course uh, a big controversy with friend of the show Buffy Saint Marie 
who uh, has always identified as First Nations, and now people are real, realizing that she was actually adopted. And uh, there's a big controversy. Did she deceive her fans for decades, or um, is it enough that the nation has called her as one of their own? Plus, Killers of the Flower Moon, and um, uh, what's it like to date a First Nations people, and do Indigenous people date white people? Uh, they've got a lot of fun topics we're going to roll through tonight. And of course, all night long, your calls at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. Um, tomorrow night, I'm not going to be here. Max Burns is going to be uh, taking over and classing the place up, plus a new episode of Theoretically Speaking by the great Thea Harper, our producer, which is going to focus on the sag after strike um thea does the best specials and everyone likes when i'm gone because her stuff is she does great radio i'm just here because it's part of my parole you know tomorrow night i will be performing in massachusetts in stockbridge in the berkshires at Lionsgate comedy two shows with kevin bartini at seven and nine kevin's a very funny guy but i'll say this again he's he's the worst driver in the world uh, he's the worst driver I've ever been in a car with. And every time he asks me to do a show, I always say, uh, first, are you driving? Second, how much money? And where is it? So if I'm if, if anything happens, it's it's his fault. Just keep that in mind. The seven o'clock show is already sold out. But uh, you can call the Lionsgate if you're up there in the Berkshires to get tickets for the 9 p.m. show. Apparently, it's a really tight room. I'm very, very excited to go up there and uh, excited to be back with all y'all on Monday. Well, let's do a show Lots going on in the world today. It's madness. The House passed their Israel aid bill that's tied directly to cuts in IRS spending. In other words, we take in less revenue because we're cutting the IRS budget so the deficit goes up. Uh, They passed it in the House. It's already dead in the Senate. Joe Biden will veto it if it ever gets past the Senate. It's going to die on the floor of the Senate like Caesar. They have wasted America's time voting for a bill that is already DOA. The bill's got to include Ukraine. And someone explained to me why these Republicans are willing to spend their time on our dime fighting for tax cheats, especially when it's supposed to offset costs. Uh, Joe Biden did not call for a ceasefire, but he has called for a humanitarian pause in the Middle East conflict. Senator Dick Durbin went a step further and said a ceasefire is urgent. Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. used their time on the stand today at their family business civil trial to downplay their roles and their knowledge of widespread fraud. Kind of makes you wish you'd gotten one job in your life that wasn't for your dad, gentlemen, doesn't it? Huh? Uh, here in New York, the FBI raided the home of Brianna Suggs, who's the chief fundraiser to New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a second woman has sued Aerosmith singer Steven Tyler for sexual assault. Both of the women claim the assaults happened in the 70s when they were 16 and 17 years old. <laughs> 45 years ago today, the police released their first, and for my money, their best album, Outlandos de Moore. Today is the birthday of James Polk. He's the reason California is a state. He ordered Zachary Taylor's troops to march into Mexican-occupied California. They fired on our troops. The newspapers back home reported our boys were taking fire from the Mexicans. The public got behind a war the way they always do. And they took California from the Mexicans because Polk wanted more slave states. Happy birthday, 11th president. It's also the birthday of Warren G. Harding, who for years was considered our most corrupt president. He is not considered that anymore. Burt Lancaster would have been 110 today. K.D. Lang has a birthday today. Happy birthday to the great songwriter and singer and guitarist J.D. Souther, who's been on this show. Um, Ringo Starr released his star-studded album Ringo, which featured John and Paul and George all on the record. 
and it was released 50 years ago today, and it still sounds great. And of course, on the 50-year anniversary of Ringo Starr's best solo album, and the 35-year anniversary of what might be George Harrison's uh, second best solo album, Cloud Nine, the Beatles released their final song today, Now and Then. We'll be talking about that. It's a beautiful record. It's very brief. And it does feature John Lennon's vocals back in the 90s when Paul McCartney inducted John Lennon into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yoko Ono gave him three John songs from a 1977 piano demo that was recorded onto a crappy tape recorder. And Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Ringo Starr got together with Jeff Lynne on the Beatles Anthology Project. And they tried to turn all three into songs. Free as a Bird, I think it's a great song. Sounds amazing. Cool video. Uh, Real Love, that's really grown on me over the years. But they, they couldn't get the third song to work. Apparently, the sound quality was just really poor. And you can hear the demo anytime. I, I've, it's been on bootleg for years. You can hear the original on uh, YouTube. George Harrison gave up on it and said they couldn't do it. The vocal was just buried by the piano. It didn't sound good. They couldn't turn it into a real song. Now, thanks to Peter Jackson's uh, facility with AI... They were able to pull John's vocal up. It is nothing artificial. It is John Lennon's vocal. It is John Lennon's piano. They just cleaned it up. And I've seen firsthand how this really works. I recently did this poem that we did at the Sexy Liberal Tour about uh, all of Donald Trump's trials. Poem over Caligula. We made a video of it that went out last week. And when the video was first recorded, the audio quality was really bad. And I thought, I've got to run it. I've got to do it again. And then we ran it through this AI program and it brought the vocals out incredibly. So if you haven't heard it yet, it's pretty lovely. And the best thing about it is it gets better every time you hear it. Now, there's a lot going on in the world with what's going on in the house and, of course, what's going on in the Middle East. But I, I want to talk about Tyree Nichols today. At the beginning of this year, way back in the first week of 2023, in Memphis, five police officers brutally beat 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, a black man, to death. It started with a traffic stop. Tyree was unarmed. He was outnumbered by the cops. He was trying to go home to his mom's in Memphis. And the cops snatched Tyree out of his car. The department has never actually told us a good reason why. But they slammed this young man on the ground. And they were telling him to get on the ground. And they kept slamming him to the ground. And if you've watched the body cam footage, and many of us did back then, I don't recommend it. It's very brutal. but. Maybe you should. Tyree Nichols keeps saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything over and over again. And these men deployed pepper spray so hard and so recklessly, they hit each other with the pepper spray and they took it out on the man they were abusing. And every chance they had, they were brutal. And like most of us would, if we felt our lives were in danger, Tyree Nichols ran. He ran to his mother's house nearby, the place he was driving in the first place. According to Mapping Police Violence, one in every three people killed by a cop was running, driving, or otherwise trying to get away. And black and brown people are more likely to be killed while fleeing. Tyree Nichols almost made it home to the house where he might find help. But the cops knew they just had to call for backup, and they carried on with the violence. And of course, once they caught him after trying to run away, the brutality got even worse. And they cursed him, and they tased him, and they kick him, and they punch him. They hit him with batons. The video's brutal. And as he's lying there, the cops stood around talking about the violence. Just how normal it was. This young man struggled to stay alive, not even a hundred yards away from his mother's house. 
The cops beat him so badly, he died a couple of days later, a week before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And they weren't just trying to catch him. They wanted to stomp his ass. That's what they say in the video, stomp his ass. And when you watch the video, at least eight cops get involved in this destruction of a man. And he keeps crying out, mom, mom, mom. And the officers didn't care. And they said to one another, he reached for one of their guns. He must have been high. Look how he wouldn't go down. He must have been high. He went for our guns. The medics, by the way, didn't really help right away either. It's shocking, but compared to white patients, studies have found black patients are 40% less likely to be prescribed medication to ease the hurt from acute pain. Now, the part of this story that made the most headlines was that at least five of these officers that took part in killing Tyree Nichols were themselves black. Now, within two weeks of his death, before this video aired around the world, all five of these black cops had been fired and arrested and charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. I didn't even know that was a thing. And Memphis Police Chief Sarah Lynn Davis, who is also black, said on NBC that the fact that the cops were black takes race off the table as a contributing factor in Tyree's death. Because they were black, this isn't about race, takes race off the table. Uh, far right wing Sheriff David Clark went on Newsmax. I know, aren't you sorry you missed that? And he said, instead of calling this a police brutality case, we, we need to call this black on black crime. This wasn't police brutality. It's black on black crime. Martin Luther King gave this speech about I have a dream. Right wing people like to memorize one line from it. But in that speech, he says, there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Now, the media tried to make it about black on black crime. Right wing people tried to make it about black on black crime. But this is a great moment for white people to understand, if they want to, how what we call white supremacy is systemic. And it's hard to wrap your mind around it when you've grown up in the system. Believe me, I've, I've tried for years to open my mind and open my heart more and understand it more. This is a country where the police killed 1,192 people last year, according to the Mapping Police Violence Project. The LAPD killed three black men in the first days of this year. But my friends, Tyree Nichols' killing has everything to do with race. There doesn't need to be a white person on site for white supremacy to be functioning. White supremacy does welcome black cops to, to help itself out, but it's not going to protect the black cops the way it protects its own. And the fact that black cops can also be the face of police brutality against black people does not disprove that racism is a problem in the institution. Quite the opposite. These men live as black men in America, and that is not easy. But they all believed that they had the power and the right and the support of the Memphis PD to beat this young man to death. But because the officers in this case were African-American, a lot of Caucasians got to feign ignorance about what systemic or institutional racism in policing actually means. Uh, an activist in Memphis named Joshua Adams said it best to me. He said, it is not the color of the officer. It is the color of who's being policed. And today, one of the former Memphis cops charged with the murder of Tyree Nichols has pleaded guilty to all state and federal charges, including secondary murder, aggravated kidnapping, and official misconduct. Desmond Mills, he's on the video with the four other cops, brutally beating this young man. He entered his plea in the Memphis Federal Courthouse as part of a larger agreement to settle charges in the state court as well. We don't know yet what the other cops are going to do. 
but he pled guilty to these charges of excessive force and obstruction of justice. He agreed to plead guilty to related state charges, and he agreed to cooperate with prosecutors. He's free on bail ahead of his May 22nd sentencing hearing. But these cops failed to provide any medical help, and they lied to their supervisors about the incident. He's just the first cop to take a deal. The other four are pleading not guilty. But after the beating, Mr. Mills and the other former officers did not tell the responding medics they had beaten Tyree Nichols. They just said he was on drugs. Meanwhile, they talked about how they took turns hitting him, hitting Nichols with straight haymakers and everybody rocking Nichols. During these conversations, the officers discussed hitting Nichols to make him fall and observed that when Nichols did not fall from these blows, they believed they were about to kill him, according to the plea agreement. He told his supervisors that he knew Tyree Nichols was in bad shape. He, he said he expressed concerns about his survival, according to the agreement. But when the five cops spoke later, they, they talked about how the body camera recording might show what it might show, and they conspired together to mislead the investigators. They agreed to not report that they had repeatedly struck this young man in the head. And again, after he died, all five officers were fired right away. The four other officers have a May 6th trial date in federal court. The autopsy showed Tyree Nichols died from blows to the head. The manner of his death was homicide. The report described brain injuries, cuts and bruises to the head and other parts of the body. And this is something that white people have to reckon with. This is something the media and politicians have to reckon with. Hiring black police does not automatically solve the problems in the policing system. Just like electing a black president did not solve the racist problems in our nation. It did not make us post-racial because we hired a black president. Black cops were involved in the killings of Freddie Gray and George Floyd and Sean Bell, and we can go on and on and on. Systemic racism is systemic. It affects a whole institution, a whole nation. It's a disease. And not just in the police. It's, it's, in, it's in the whole country. It's systemic and it's structural. It doesn't matter what the race of the cop was because they knew they could get away with it because the victim was black. If you don't change the structure, the system will continue to brutalize black bodies. They didn't do this to a white motorist. They didn't dare do this to a white motorist, friends. And that's why it is racist, even though the cops are black. They did it because they believed to their bones they could get away with brutalizing a young black male. Look, I, I, I'm just a, a flawed Caucasian trying to learn and trying to do better. So let me close this out with uh, the words of James Baldwin, who said, Black policemen were another matter. We used to say, if you must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sakes, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman would completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that, though he was black, he was not black like you. Nothing will bring Tyree Nichols back. He should not have been stopped. He should not have been beaten. He should still be alive. I guess this is the beginning of justice. It'll never ease the pain in his mother's heart. But maybe, just maybe, this unspeakable tragedy can help more people understand what is meant when we talk about a culture of white supremacy and systemic racism. The cops did it because they believed they could get away with doing it because their victim had the same color skin they did. Make no mistake, it's still white supremacy. It is still the disease that has tainted this country since before the Declaration of Independence. 
We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. We'll be right back with your calls and with Ivy Scott in just a moment. This is Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. And welcome back. We're at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. I'm so pleased to welcome Ivy Scott to the show. She is a criminal justice reporter who focuses on Massachusetts state's courts, uh, district attorneys, and the state attorney general's office. Previously, she worked with the Boston Globe's criminal justice team covering the Boston Police Department. Um, but none of that will prepare you for what she's done. It's uh, something that's very creative, very moving, and very political. She's joined the Boston Globe advice columnist, Meredith Goldstein, who does a podcast about relationships called Love Letters. Um, Ivy Scott has now taken over the Love Letters podcast for three episodes for a special series called We Found Love. It's three episodes about three couples, all in different stages in their relationships, couples that may remind you of your parents or the relationship you're in, but they're all about what it's like to find love in a hopeless place. This three-part series is about women who are in romantic relationships with men in Massachusetts prisons, and and not just any inmates. Um, these are all men who are serving life sentences for murder. In each of these stories, the, the man was already incarcerated when the romance began. Now, you might expect something tragic, like lost women who send love letters to the Menendez brothers, but it's actually something that's Deeply moving, deeply challenging, and it will change the way you view the criminal justice system and the way you view marriage. Um, it's really a pleasure to welcome Ivy Scott to SiriusXM. Hello. Glad to be Hi. here. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to start with the most obvious question. Where did this idea come from? I love that you did this. There's never been something like this in a podcast that I can think of before. How was this idea born? 
It was born, honestly, out of the work that I do in the day to day. I spend a lot of time through my work communicating and interacting with um, men who are in various prisons across the state for various reasons. Um, And the very first inmate that I began to correspond with was somebody that I met through his girlfriend. Um, There's a a special service that you have to set up in order to communicate with inmates in Massachusetts. And she introduced me to it. And I had assumed when I first met the couple that they had met prior to this man going to prison. And I realized over the course of their relationship that um, she had in fact met him through her work as an activist um, and the two had fallen in love and started dating. Um, And that realization immediately set off almost like a set of fireworks of questions in my brain. Uh, But the couple broke up not long after I, I discovered this about them. And so for several months, my questions went unanswered. They sort of sat percolating in my brain. And then about eight, nine months later, I met uh, Charlene, who is the protagonist um, or one of the protagonists of our first episode. And yes. I met her at a prison education event. And she mentioned just in a very brief retelling of her relationship that she had met her now husband while he was already incarcerated. And immediately all those questions came rushing back and I approached her immediately. And then we just got started talking. And that's really how this whole thing came to life. Was it important to you that in each of the cases it would be a man who was uh, serving a life sentence? No, it it came about um, unintentionally in that way. I I realized that, A, there are many couples in which um, this situation comes about and it's the woman that's incarcerated. It doesn't happen as often, but that is possible. And there are, of course, many, many situations in which um, either the the man or the woman is incarcerated. However, it is not for a life sentence. It really, it just happened to be that the three couples that I got to know the best um, were in that particular situation. Yeah, um, it's really fascinating. And I was really surprised by how moving it was. Before we get to the specific stories, I just want to ask about your your production life and doing this. I mean, how did you conduct your interviews and, and did you actually go to meet any of these men in prison? I did. So I will, one, I guess, important point of clarification is that the uh, first couple, the husband was sentenced to second degree murder. And so he was actually paroled um, after okay. more than a decade in prison. And so I interviewed him and his wife at their home um, where they now live in Western Massachusetts. Um, however, in the case of the second couple, I did we did go into the prison um, and do an interview there in the visiting room um, with the male partner. Um, and actually, I had hoped initially to do um, a sort of a joint interview with both of them. But uh, as you might expect, the rules for visitation are pretty strict. And so so um, we were allowed to go in there separately. Um, and so we we were able to talk to the couple together over the phone. But I, I went into the prison specifically to interview the male partner. Um, and then in the case of the third couple, I talked to both of them over the phone. In episode one, you talk about Charlene um, and Dwayne Blake, who met and fell in love and, and actually had a child. It's a very fascinating story. Married 32 years in love, raised a couple kids, have, have a grandchild. Um, I I guess, how did you come to learn of their story? So as I mentioned, I I met Charlene at this, it was like a a prison education event about reentry services. And um, she does some work supporting um, inmates who are about to be released and come back into the world. Um, And so she shared just like a part of her story of what it was like to help her husband readjust. Um, Mm. And so I approached her afterwards and was like, out of, you know, out of curiosity, how did you two meet? And when she told me, I... I couldn't 
believe it. I mean, I have come to realize over time that these stories are a little more common than I had initially thought. But in the beginning, the fact that this could happen and, and trying to conceive of how two people could meet and and build an intimate relationship in these circumstances was completely mind-blowing to me. Um, and so I just had so many questions for her. She and I sat down and got coffee um, over the summer and just talked and talked and talked and talked. And the more that she told me, the more interested I became. I love the episode. At one point in it, you say that you thought this was a unicorn, but that just proved your naivete. Um, how, how do folks not incarcerated generally wind up connecting with prisoners? Uh, I mean, I, when I was younger, a lot of my friends did, did pen pal letter writing programs. But I mean, is social media a means of connecting with convicts? Facebook definitely is a way. I will say, though, that um, the quote unquote, traditional pen pal program definitely is continues to be a medium um, by which people meet inmates and not always in a romantic context. I mean, there are plenty of platonic relationships that develop this way, too. Um, but Facebook is certainly a place where inmates might have their family or friends make a post about them for people that are interested, again, either for platonic or romantic relationships. And then I think one of the most surprising to me was how often this happens um, in the activism space. You know, there will be people who go into prison to volunteer either to teach or um, they're doing, you know, reform work and they will meet and really connect with a particular inmate um, and romantic connections do develop that way as well. Yeah, I, I think what surprised me the most was how incredibly sane and grounded all the women were. They really defy a stereotype of this. And in the case of Charlene and Dwayne, of course, the murder he committed, he was he was, I mean, 21 years old. He was very, very young when he made the worst mistake of his life. And it, it's actually um, kind of very moving seeing how Charlene found herself coming to care for this man. What was it that surprised you the most about this relationship? And why did you decide to open the series with Charlene and Dwayne? It felt like the best fit to open it with Charlene and Blake because they illustrate the full. I'm sorry, arc Blake. Forgive what, me. Forgive me. No, no I worries. The they backwards. illustrate the full arc of of what this can look like. You know, they've they've really been through it all. They have had that initial meeting, those first butterflies. They've done the prison wedding. They've had to adjust to all of the new challenges of when he came home and, you know, they have faced challenge after challenge after challenge and surmounted all of those. And so I think that starting with their story sort of gives other people in the situation hope that it can work out and for the listener allows them to see that this is not something that is doomed from the start like there are people although they are perhaps not super common it does exist and it is possible to make this work um, but I'll say in terms of what was most surprising and this goes for all three couples and not just for um, Charlene and Blake but I think that something that really struck me is how different all of these men are now as compared yes. to when they first committed these crimes. And like Blake is a prime example because, you know, he, um, if you get into like the fine details of his case, he was um, sentenced on what we call a, a joint venture legal theory. And what that just means is that he was not the person who pulled the trigger. He was standing next right. to the person um, who committed the actual crime. Um, but of course, you know, being involved in a situation like that in any capacity is very serious. 
But he continued to reckon with the consequences of his actions, you know, asking himself, what if I hadn't been there? What if I'd made different friends? What if I'd made different choices? What if I'd stayed it down in Georgia? And so just seeing the growth that comes out of all of these men over time um, and just how that enables them to be better partners in their relationship, that was really like wonderful and amazing to me to see. Yeah, all of these men seem to have really done the work. And I'm a big fan of restorative justice programs in our prison system. But I was curious, was it your impression that the love was redemptive in a way for these men? Or had these men already been working on their own personal redemption, which made them more easy to love? Or, or is it a combination of both? I think it is a combination of both. I think that what we see from a lot of these men is a deep gratitude um, in having found a woman who was willing to see them as a whole person and not just as the worst day of their life and as the their worst action in life. Um, yes. But I think on the other hand, in order to be able to contribute meaningfully to these relationships, there has to have been an amount of work that took place beforehand. Yeah, um, you do a very artful job of the storytelling and conveying how they were able to conceive a child while he was still in prison. Um, I won't spoil it for folks. They should they should listen to the episode. But what I found very moving was the whole notion of meeting each other's family. That was something that had never crossed my mind. Yeah, no, I think it is a really sweet moment. And I think that it is also a very honest moment that I, I felt was important to include because of course um, you know on the one hand you have Charlene who introduces her her young daughter to Blake and that's a very sweet moment where she begins to see him as part of the family but on the flip side you also have Blake meeting Charlene's sister who is very apprehensive and who has a lot of questions for this man because you know as you might expect it's not every woman who wants to hear that her sister <laughs> is getting ready to marry an inmate um, yes. and so I think that it shows sort of that duality of um, families, too, and people who were expecting to never have any contact with the justice system, having to take a good look at some of these inmates and having and almost being forced to see them as whole people. Yeah, there's also a, a real rich irony in that, in a way, prison keeps your relationship safe. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting thing to think about because there are so many restrictions um, and so many things that make this kind of relationship frustrating and exhausting and hard. Uh, but on the other hand, you are able to cultivate almost a world apart um, and to have this relationship that exists within the confines of the prison walls um, that is just very separate from all of the stresses of daily life. And you see this in all three relationships, the way that um, the framework of prison, as exhausting and as frustrating as it is, um, also creates almost like a disconnect and uh, a place for these women to have a relationship that is, is very separate from the rest of their life. Yes. Uh, part two is, is very moving in We Found Love. It's called This Call Is Not Private. And that's where you tell a very different story about um, a couple named Venus and Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius um, has, is serving a life sentence for first degree murder, and they've been together for more than six years, engaged for five. And it's described, you describe it as they're staring down a future of holding hands over vending machine sandwiches. Is it true that she actually met the man who who she fell in love with on accident? 
Yeah, it it was a a favor to her cousin. Um, and so her cousin basically was like, "Can you give this guy a call? Like, he, he you know, he, it's been a long time since he's seen the world on the outside. He could really use some company." And she's initially very reluctant, but ultimately she agrees. Um, and she finds that uh, he is very different um, than she was imagining an inmate to be, but especially because her cousin had described to her a very different guy. Um, and at the very <laughs> last minute, the guy that um, was supposed to be on the phone, he's not available. So they pass the phone off to a different guy. Um, and this is who she ends up meeting. And so it really is sort of serendipity that brings them together. That's crazy. I mean, it's, it's uh, astonishing to wonder how they maintain hope when there's no real possibility of ever living together or or parole in the future yeah no it is it's very interesting the way that they have continued to sort of ground themselves and put their foundation um in that hope what i will say and this is sort of a tease to the third episode um is that there is legislation um on the table in massachusetts um to end life without parole as a sentence or life without the possibility of parole as a sentence. Um, and if that were to be made retroactive, um, that would give all inmates, um, even those who had initially been sentenced to life in prison without parole, the opportunity to go home after a certain number of years. And so I think that for them, it's sort of an interesting uh, shift where in the beginning they really didn't have that hope and now all of a sudden that hope is sort of being pushed into the spotlight and so whereas mm. they might not have been able to hold on year after year after year now there's almost more reason to believe that this could happen i mean this requires a level of commitment that most of us can never even imagine uh, at one point venus says to you he gave me a choice and i made my choice he said he didn't think i was going to make it past a year and a half but it's going on six is there a common link you find with these women something that they 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 share is it a is it a is it a wisdom it's certainly not a a, a lack of groundedness that has caused them to make this choice of giving their hearts giving their love and giving their future to men who may never be available to them you know it's an interesting point you made at the end about you know men who may never be available to them because even in in talking, I did some some background research, also talking to to experts on this, and they all made the point that, uh, sort of ironically, a lot of these inmates are very emotionally available because they have all of this time it's to true. sit and think and reflect yeah. um, and be introspective, um, and so and they're they're curious about the outside world, this world that they haven't been in for a long time. So they really want to know. They want to know all about your day. They want to ask you questions. Um, and so I think for a lot of these women, um, I think the common denominator is a degree of empathy that allows them to yeah. open up to these men in the first place. But I think that once they form that initial connection and they get to know these guys, it's actually, I mean, of course, there are hurdles and challenges, but on the emotional side, it isn't that difficult to strengthen that connection because um, these men are have so much time and so much attention to give. Right. What would surprise our listeners most about dating in prison? It just sort of seems like something that uh, most people will never experience or never even think about. What surprised you about this culture? I think how 
possible it is and i and not possible as in it's easy but possible right. as in how many people are committed to making it work um i mean when i think about uh for example every single time that i call um one of the inmates to whether we're doing an interview for a story or whatever it is um it is very frustrating to me that the calls are outgoing only like they can only call me i cannot call them back um when they call me maybe the service is good maybe the service is bad the call lasts a max of 20 minutes um when the 20 minutes is over it just beeps wow. and hangs up and that's it and like that's all you get and i if i had to maintain a relationship with somebody that way i think i would last about two weeks um i just don't think that i have the patience or the steadfastness for that um but there are many many people who like they cherish that time um and that time is all that they get and they are so willing to make the most of it and so willing to fill that time with like all of the joy and the laughter and the excitement and the emotion um that you know in my mind you need hours to develop and so yeah. there are so many barriers and it has just been an absolute marvel for me to see people's dedication and determination to overcoming and working around those barriers well, I mean, also the the complete lack of privacy. I mean, there's always a correctional officer nearby. There's cameras everywhere. The phone calls are never private. It seems like that's an, uh, an incredible hindrance towards fostering any intimacy. I, I think so, too. And I think that, honestly, for a lot of these couples, they have they just sort of accept that baseline lack of privacy as uh, par for the course um, and almost like do their best to pretend that it isn't happening. And I think, you know, to be fair, it would be one thing if they were on a phone call and all of a sudden you had a correctional officer like popping into the phone call to like add his two cents. I think that because um, there are mechanisms to like almost create an imaginary sense of privacy um, and to just like, you know, hope that the call is not going to be listened to and hope that no one is going to play it back later. And like, you know, hope that your emails aren't being too closely read and like hope that maybe the correctional officer will turn his eyes so you can like, you know, give your partner an extra long hug or hold their hand extra long. I think yes. that they there's a real commitment to finding those moments of intimacy, those tiny pockets, wherever it's possible. I'm wondering, have you had any pushback about the series? Uh, I, I'm sure there are those who uh, would be disapproving of even telling these stories. I, I went to the Globe's website, I went to the comment section, and I saw a lot of lovely supportive comments, and I saw a few, like one that said, only the Globe would romanticize a convicted murderer. I'm wondering if you had any sort of resistance or, or comments like that while you were putting the series together. There were a few, and I think that what was interesting, though, is that um, the best picture of that, of, of what that resistance looks like, actually came from talking to these women about their families, because all of these women had at least one person who said to them, this is a terrible idea. What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? Um, and so I think that I kept the, that sentiment in mind um, as I was making the project. And I also kept in mind, because I, I think what we can't forget is the fact that, you know, all of these serious crimes, there are victims and those victims have families. And so you want to tell the story in a way that does not diminish the severity of what happened. Um, but at the same time, says this is a horrible thing this is incredibly heartbreaking the person that did this however is not evil to their core and i right. think that that was sort of the balancing act of this project um was 
allowing not allowing listeners to forget that something incredibly horrible and incredibly painful happened but at the same time saying this behavior was not excused but the person wants to be better the person wants to uh i think we talked about redemption at the beginning wants to atone wants to redeem wants to live a life um, that is more than this horrible thing Ivy Scott is a criminal justice reporter for the Boston Globe. Her three-part series, We Found Love, is part of the relationship podcast, Love Letters. It's highly recommended. Ms. Scott, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? So you can find me on Twitter. I am at uh, It's Ivy Scott. So it's just at It's Ivy Scott. Um, And then, of course, for the podcast itself, that is uh, available on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and really appreciate your work. Have a great evening. We will be right back. Thank you. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. You know, since we took over this slot here at What the Hell O'Clock on the Progress Channel, uh, we've made a couple of really smart decisions. Uh, bringing Thea on board, it not it's ruined her health, but it's been great for us to work with her. Um, we've had some great guests join us, some great comics. We've done the show from L.A. a lot, but one of the smartest things we've done is somehow coerce Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella into doing a regular segment. And wow, the listeners have loved this. I've loved this. I, I didn't know that we're the first radio show to actually have a, a segment with indigenous people on on it who are brilliant writers and broadcasters and activists, but um, I'm so thrilled that they're even talking to me. Simon Moya-Smith is an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News. Uh, he's the author of the forthcoming book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. He recently profiled Paulina Alexis of the Peabody Award-winning FX series Reservation Dogs for the Cut. He is fearless. Julie Franchella is an artist and illustrator uh, who has uh, done extensive work as a therapist um, for children with trauma. She's a terrific illustrator. She's Ojibwe, a proud citizen of the Abachawana First Nation, and her work serves as a vibrant tapestry woven from the threads of her experiences and the histories of those she depicts, and she's represented by Charlotte Sheedy Literary Agency. It is a great pleasure to welcome Simon and Julie back to SiriusXM. Hi, guys. Hi, thank you so much for having us. How's it going? Thank you, and happy uh, Native American Heritage Month. Oh, hell yeah. Happy Native American Heritage Month. I mean, uh, I I wish people talked about Native Native American Heritage Month. Um, Let me begin by asking what your thoughts are on the occasion and uh, and what it means to you, Simon. Well, you're right. It's really difficult to get even mainstream news, especially these programs on, you know, Stephen Colbert and uh, the Jimmies to get them to recognize Native American Heritage Month. Now, they always will when it comes to Hispanic Heritage Month, Black History. But when it comes to Native American Heritage Month, they don't, I don't think they know where to begin. Nobody's even tugging at their their sleeves and saying, hey, you need to address the indigenous people of this side of the continent because there there was even a uh, presidential proclamation that was sent on November 1st by the Biden administration. But somehow or another, a lot of people are still going, what's November? It's what again? And that's yeah. pretty, it's, it's really difficult for us to get the, the mainstream's attention about this month. Julie, what do you think? Yeah, you know, um, in Canada, we actually have um, 
Indigenous Peoples Month, History Month in June. So it's a little different. But here in the United States, you know, I think um, it's so important for people to have that month to just kind of focus on learning about Indigenous cultures and learning about um, Indigenous heritage. And also, um, I think one of the things that stands out for me, especially um, in the last number of years, is um, basically how this coincides with, you know, the crisis climate, the climate crisis that's going on right now. Yes. Um, you know, just recognizing that, you know, the first stewards of the land, you know, it's a powerful time to reflect on global conversations about environmental protection. And I think Native, Native American Heritage Month is a good month to kind of, you know, focus some of our attention on that as well. Um, so that's one of the things that I like to kind of bring up during November. Yes, I mean, I yeah, think our it's, contributions too. Well, absolutely, but also to honor the traditions and honor the culture and the languages that that and recognize they need to be protected and preserved for future generations. Um, do we have any issues with the term Native American Heritage Month? I, I've I've struggled in the last few years with the term Native American. Um, I, I, I get it. I get that it was intended to be more respectful. Um, I, I've become, as I get older, more fond of Indigenous or First Nations. I always thought mm -hmm. Native Americans, I mean, I, I, I get it. But, you know, that's like... If if the aliens came down here and colonized us and uh, committed genocide on us and moved us on the reservations and made us the bad guys in their shitty alien John Wayne movies and then called us the Native Martians, I, I might have issues with it. I mean, are, how do we feel about the term Native Americans? I mean, if I could jump in, I don't yeah. like it, obviously, clearly, because we're not native to America. We're we're pre-American. Right. We Thank existed you. before the idea of the United yes. States, of uh, this continent being called North America. We've been here since time immemorial. So if you really want to get stupid with it, you know, a Native American would be John Adams. A Native yes, American would be, you know, George Washington, because they're the original, quote unquote, Americans. But no, we predate that. We're Oglala, we're Osage, we're Ojibwe, we're Raramuri, we're, we're all of those things before we're considered American. And also, we were the last ones to be considered American. Thank the you. first peoples of this continent were the last ones to receive citizenship. Now, 1924, again, right? 1924. Say that again. Was it 1924, I think? Like yeah, less than 100 right. years ago. Yeah. Less than 100 years ago. So it is, it's kind of ridiculous that we still use that term Native American, but we are trying our very best to get people to change their lexicon, use indigenous. For example, the Native American Journalist Association just changed their name to the Ind Indigenous Journalist Association. Oh, that's so awesome. little by little it's changing. Julie, what do you think? Am I, am I being too yeah. uh, critical of the term? No, I mean, I think, um, I think too, just for, you know, when we're speaking about, you know, a lot of people recognize, you know, Native Americans as, as, you know, sort of the indigenous group here in the United States. In Canada, we obviously use indigenous because, you know, we're not American. Um, and so, but most nations, you know, refer to themselves by their, their nation name. So even though we're known as Ojibwe, within our Ojibwe, you know, sort of reserves we actually call ourselves the Anishinaabe and you know the the Navajo actually consider themselves the Dene so even within our nations you know the the, the terminology is very specific so I think Native American Heritage Month is a very good start 
Um, I like that they're moving more towards indigenous people. Um, that term, I think, is more I inclusive. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm 100% behind you know changing it to indigenous as opposed to Native American. Julie, I know that thanks to the the Jay Treaty, um, your citizenship spans the border between Canada and the U.S. But it it does seem to me that Canada's way ahead of the United States on recognizing the contributions of indigenous people, uh, trying to bring some justice to the atrocities of the past. And of course, as we've discussed, even just having a national reckoning about the atrocity of uh, residential schools. Yes, I mean, that definitely, uh, I think it, it, I think we're a bit ahead of the game in terms of, you know, what's going on in the United States right now. But again, there are 94 calls to action that were brought forth in this uh, Truth and Reconciliation Report. And that came out in 2015. And to this date, only 13 of those calls to action have actually been addressed. So, you know, it's it's a slow process. But, you know, um, I think just little by little, you know, baby steps, we're going to get there. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful, you know, to you and to Chris and to Thea and SiriusXM Progress for giving us um, a, a platform and being able to kind of talk about these things. And, and you don't need to thank you don't need really to thank important. Chris, Julie, seriously, Chris, you can leave out. You, Not he, Chris. <laughs> he, he means well, but you can thank everybody else. Um, guys, I, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad to talk about Native American Heritage Month because the state of Oklahoma is celebrating by banning the book Killers of the Flower Moon from schools and libraries. <laughs> I guess, Simon, I shouldn't be surprised. Of course not. I mean, again, it's 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 about trying to silence indigenous people, silence history. And it seems like every time I'm on your show, I have to say it, that you can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're guilty of a genocide. And so what it tries to do is uh, the United States and you know, always tries to tamp down the truth when it comes to indigenous people. Right. So, yeah, especially when they use terms like get off my land and then you're just like, well, and, and, no, and another one is uh, what we usually get is um, go back to your country. And then we are, as indigenous people, we're like, no, you go back to yours. And they're like, well, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Oglala Lakota. And they're like, well, what is that? So they're not even educated enough to understand yeah. where we come from, from our res reservations and reserves. But it is always, that's why ethnic studies is always on the chopping block. Uh, this country wants to pretend that it's only 200 and, you know, that it's 250 years old, but it's been here so long that they have that they they're allowed to say always that my my grandfather has always fought for this country no there are restaurants in italy selling biscotti that have been around longer than this country and we have to remind these people of their misdeeds but they still put blinders on just like these maga fucks they just go nope 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 that never happened or some of them are even so bad as like, well, you lost fair and square, and then you have to ask them. So rape, yeah. murder, theft, pillage is fair and square. That's how you got this country? Yeah. I mean, it's all fair at this point. I I honestly don't know what justice would look like. I, I don't know what a proper restitution or reparations would look like or what it could look like after so many hundreds of years of, 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 of atrocity. I mean, we just had Ken Burns on to talk about his film about the American Buffalo. And again, it's, it's not a film about animals. It's a film about humans and how the people who were here first treated the land and the nature of it and how the white people who invaded <laughs> regarded the land and the nature. And it's, it's a movie about ethnic cleansing and how the buffalo right. were hunted to death systemically 
to bring about a genocide. We talked about this last week, but it's still just something that, Julie, I don't know what justice would even look like at this point. Right. Well, I think, you know, thinking about, for me, you know, the, the state of what's going on right now, and I'm going to bring this back to the Middle East. Um, when I think about what's going on there and I think about, you know, where we are here in, in um, I call it Turtle Island or, you know, North yeah. America, you know, somebody kind of came after me on, um, I still call it Twitter. You know, I said I made a post about calling for a ceasefire and somebody said, well, you know, um, how, how did the uh, ceasefire and the, the treaties, you know, end up with, you know, how did how did the Native Americans do with that? You know, and I was trying to explain that, you know, we're not over here, you know, bombing each other right now. You know, we're trying to little by little move towards something that that at least resembles, um, you know, a, an understanding, a shared space. And that's kind of where where I think we have to kind of focus on. You know, I was trying to explain to this person who kind of came after me that, you know, Native Americans know that nobody owns this land. We share this land. And that's something that I think is really important um, to, to understand. Um, and so during Native American Heritage Month, you know, I think we're reminded of the profound ways in which indigenous peoples have shaped our understanding of stewardship and community and coexistence. And I think these values deeply rooted in Native American cultures resonate with the universal aspirations for peace in regions like the Middle East. And the yeah. resilience and the wisdom of Native people encourage us to look beyond our differences and to find common ground in our shared humanity. And our elders, you know, speak about this often, a foundation upon which peace can be built between, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians and all people seeking harmony and mutual understanding. And I think that's something that, you know, in North America, that that is the goal, right? You know, we yes. don't own the land, but how do we share the land? How do we protect the land? How do we keep our mother, the earth, safe? That's the question. How do we, yeah. and then how do we teach them? How do we convince them? Well, I, I, I want to ask you guys about a, a controversy that I'm sure you both have been asked about many times related to uh, an artist who has had my respect for a long time. She has been a guest on this show. We were thrilled to meet her, thrilled to have her and, uh, and, and promote her work and celebrate her work and her contributions. And that, of course, is uh, Buffy St. Marie, who became famous long ago as being a Cree girl who became a, uh, a, a successful recording artist. And over the decades, she has played live around the world and brought a lot of happiness to a lot of people. And now in the last couple of weeks, questions have been raised about Buffy St. Marie and her indigenous ancestry. A lot of people are deeply upset about this. Um, I don't think most Caucasians are aware of the controversy, but uh, as someone who follows her and has followed her, it's burning up social media. Um, it's caused a lot of divisions. A lot of people feel very hurt and betrayed. And I'd love to uh, have the conversation with you about what you've learned about this and, and, and how you feel. There, there are conflicting reports that the, the Cree nation uh, considers her to be one of them, that she has been adopted into the nation. But uh, at the same time, she does not apparently have indigenous blood. And Simon, how did you first hear about this? And has this controversy been out there for a while? I mean, it has. We don't like to air our dirty laundry with white people because sure. then they'll use I it against see. us. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? You, we have our own enemies out there, the oil and gas industry, sports mascots, you know, all of that. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's as if we, it's, it's really, if we needed another deep fracture within Indian country, for fuck's sake. I mean, it really has divided Indian country, you know, in a way that 
we we're all feeling it and every time you go to facebook and every time you go on instagram somebody's saying you know i'm with her and other other people are calling her bluffy but i think what's wow. most important here is that people need to understand one thing about in, in adoption for indigenous people Please. adoption is sacred to yes. be adopted in a in a tribe or a nation is sacred and it comes with responsibilities you are recognized by the nation or the tribe to be a part of the nation or the tribe, and you're going to go to the sacred ceremonies, etc. But just to give you an example, if a white woman from England moved here to New Mexico, where I am, and we fell in love, and I married her, we got married, and in my nation uh, adopted her, she would still be white. And I yeah. think you, people need to understand that adoption for indigenous people is spiritual, it's traditional, it's sacred, but it doesn't change your blood. Now, having said that, there are wannabes and then there are might bees. Wannabes, and we've discussed this over and over again, mm -hmm. they're the dipshits that wear the headdress, that go to the football games and go, I'm a quarter yeah. Choctaw, and they use that, that bullshit lineage and their family lore to justify their racism. Whereas might be's are people who might be, but really don't fucking know. And a lot of those actually happen to be African-Americans because when they were slaves and they would run away from the plantation, often enough, they would come to our camps. And then we as indigenous people would fight the white people who were coming over to claim their quote unquote property. And then the African man, woman and child, all of them would be a part of the family. And then there would be marriages and then intermarriages. And so though there's a lot of might be's out there and right. that's where right now we're all trying to figure out what the fuck we're going to do as indian country because she's done a lot for us a lot of representation in in media and music over so many decades but now we're hit with this and once again indian country is fucking divided oh i'm so i'm so it's such a sad story i mean julie the the piapo family in saskatchewan shared a letter uh, confirming that mm -hmm. Buffy St. Marie had been adopted into their family. I, I know that um, First Nations have the right and sovereignty to decide who their members are, uh, and it doesn't require a blood or genetic connection, as Simon said. How, how do you feel about this, and how has it been for you? Well, you know, Buffy St. Marie, you know, she, the Cree family that she um, is a member of, because she is. So we have something called kinship in indigenous, you know, um, traditions. And so kinship, again, what Simon was saying is you're not necessarily a blood relation. So, you know, the Piapot First Nation, uh, the family there and the community, as well as the chief, have said, regardless of whether or not she has indigenous blood, she is our family. They have right. decided that she has been with them. She's walked through funerals, ceremonies. She has been there and grieved with the community. She has supported the community. She has done so much for, um, you know, indigenous causes as well. I think what people are upset about is that they believe that she may have known all along. So she wasn't right. adopted or they're saying that she wasn't adopted as a child. I believe that she probably was told somewhere along the way as as one might she's in her 80s you know don't forget yeah. i don't know if people realize but you know in the in this in the as as early as you know 1900s it was not okay to be native the way that the world looked at indigenous people it wasn't a good thing to be native so somebody of her age going around claiming that she's indigenous you have to wonder you know what would she have gained from that you know in that time 
you know, in the 60s, that wasn't okay. It wasn't cool. In Canada, you you couldn't even vote if you're an Indigenous person, you know, in the 1960s until, uh, sorry, 1960. Right. So, you know, Buffy, Buffy St. Marie, I've been to the Piapot First Nation in Saskatchewan. Um, it's, it's a reservation that is be- very, very humble. Um, they remember the old ways. They're not, you know, um, a very modern, you know, they're they're in the middle of nowhere. Saskatchewan is a very small um, population. Um, they're on the prairies and um, they honor virtues like uh, respect and respectful communication. And what's been going on right now with the way that this has been handled, you know, a lot of lateral violence in indigenous communities and in Indian country, you know, many people have taken over, you know, ugly things, as we say, you know, like hate speech and just a total lack of humbleness and decency in discussing uh, this matter in particular. Um, So I think what this so-called, you know, unmasking does instead of bringing justice I think, you know, it just, as Simon said, it widens and deepens this gap and it kind of poisons the climate. Um, and so, again, um, I actually watched the documentary. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't going to, but I decided that I would. And one thing that's kind of glossed over for people who may not know, Buffy St. Marie made allegations against her brother of sexual abuse, her biological brother, apparently her biological brother. In this documentary, they found a uh, birth certificate that says that she actually was not adopted. Her parents are Italian and, and white. Right. And one thing, you know, just that stood out for me as someone who has worked with childhood or child victims of sexual abuse, um, one thing that came to mind um, was it may have been a way for her to mentally and emotionally protect herself. You know, I heard somebody uh, refer to her as either being a liar or she's delusional. And I was thinking, well, what if it started out, you know, somebody said, oh, you know, you might have been adopted or you might, we might have, you know, indigenous, you know, blood or something. And so she may have latched onto that. Um, right. It might have been, you know, and then all of a sudden she meets this family because she wasn't adopted when she was young. The adoption right. came when she was older, when she was an adult. And this Piapot family had lost two daughters. And so I believe they found comfort in each other. And so I, it probably snowballed. This is just my assumption. This is just sort right. of, again, I'm not speaking to any, um, um, I haven't spoken to Buffy or her family about this, but as a as a person who's worked with, you know, children who've been sexually assaulted, this kind of came to mind and it's quite complex. And I think, you know, maybe she in, didn't intend any harm, um, and I think it maybe was a way for her to distance herself from the biological, right. you know, family, especially if her biological brother was, you know, um, um, sexually abusing her. As that's course. what her claim is. Um, I, I think the, so, the critique is the critique is that she she has profited and, and and built a career for six decades off of something that that might not be accurate. But I, my understanding is that even if the the nation does adopt her, that doesn't give any official or legal benefits, right, Julie? I mean, I, in that in that case, no. I think what had happened, you know, she had won a Juno Award for Aboriginal Artist of the Year, and the person that she lost against, actually, um, I think it was Carrie Fraser, who was a very mm. talented Indigenous woman. She ended up going on to um, take her own life, and so oh, her wow. family has spoken out and said, you know, they don't want to think about it, but what if? 
What yeah. if, you know, Buffy, because a lot of indigenous people, a lot of indigenous communities are very poor and they don't have resources that say somebody born in Massachusetts and raised in a, in a family that probably had resources. And, and, and I believe Buffy's family had, you know, not wealthy, but they had money. They were probably middle class. And right. a lot of indigenous children growing up on these reserves um, grew up rather poor. And exactly. So There's a level of privilege yeah. that, that yeah, she may, I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it diminishes the quality of the music. And, and Simon, I think these comparisons to Rachel Dolezal are, are a, a bit unfair. Hmm. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, man. I, I think, honestly, I think for Indians, for natives, for indigenous people, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Every yeah. fucking buddy seems to be Indian. It's it fills some cultural capital, some social capital, <laughs> and it carries cachet in towns like Santa Fe, where I live. And oh, I know. Drenched in turquoise, even though they've got scoliosis, they're wearing ten-pound <laughs> turquoise necklaces, and it's fucking wild, man. So I think it is just an, we're just like another one, and and then at the end of the day. We know it's just a popular thing. You know, Johnny Depp claims to be uh, indigenous, yeah. uh, uh, Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, tons of people. It's like suddenly yeah. we're cool, right? We became cool, I guess, around, you know, late, late 60s with the hippies and then, you know, Kevin Costner dances with wolves. But it just it's a common claim. And yeah, we're tired of appropriation. People just claiming it. things and taking positions, you know, in the, whether at whether at the university or in the newsroom. It just seems that there it's so ubiquitous for people to be, as we've mentioned before, box checkers, the ones That's that it. just check the box and and then fuck off. But in this case with Buffy, it really has created a situation where like, oh my god, not another one. But we again, yeah. we're there's so much new information coming out that there's more developments that a lot of natives actually are not trying to pass censure right away. It's like, oh, all right, let's wait for more information to come out. But you know, if it does come out that she's not indigenous, people are going to be like, okay, cool. Well, what the fuck are we going to do now? Let's move on. And then others are going to get really pissed and just continue to you know not just call her a box checker, but appropriator and somebody who stole. Um, an identity and stole awards and money. But right now, I think most of the natives, it, it is it is divided by the generations too, by the way. We got to understand. Yeah. She's 82. You know, yeah. her music came around. She was in what? She was in the West Village playing music when you could still be poor artist, be a poor artist in the West Village. <laughs> and yeah. so yeah. It, it, it has really created this divide and i think that's one of the one of the most unspoken victims of this whole thing is just watching natives go at each other over this i yeah. I, I agree and, and i you, i thank you i'm sorry julie go ahead please well, i was just gonna say you know um when things like this happen and you know this big expose you know it tends to be the indigenous communities that carry the pain and the weight of this because buffy is living in hawaii and she may have been you know obviously hurt and damaged by this you know, but it's the the Piapot First Nation, that family right now, they're getting a lot of hate. They're getting a lot of, you know, oh, you were starstruck and why did you do this? And they're standing by, you know, their love of their auntie, Auntie Buffy. And so, right. um, you know, it's just it's it's a lot of pain and I get it. I, I can see both sides of it. But, you know, again, it's just um, this person also has done a lot of positive things for Indigenous people. You know, she just didn't go in there and start taking, you know, awards and things like she really, you know, um, took up a torch and, and really tried to to uplift and, and help indigenous people. Gord Downey, from those of your listeners who might know the Tragically Hip, Tragically Hip you know, yes. he did a lot 
a lot for, you know, uh, residential school survivors. And so he became an adopted member of a nation before he died. And he was given a name. And, you know, so that's very common for Indigenous people to to welcome into their family in their kinship, you know, people who aren't necessarily blood relatives. So. Well, can you guys hang out? Because we got to take a break. But I, I want to ask about two-spirited people while we in our final minutes. If you can uh, join us after the break, would that be all right? That's an expression that a lot of people hear, but they don't know what it means. And I want to make sure we get it right, uh, because I actually feel like it's another example of where Americans and white people can learn a lot from First Nations people. So if you don't mind sticking around a little bit longer, we'll be right back after this break. This is SiriusXM. This is SiriusXM Progress. I am so pleased to be welcoming back to the show Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella. We are so thrilled that their Indigenous First Nations segment, which we haven't decided on the name yet, is going to go to being a weekly on this show. It's great. Uh, I love when you guys join us, and it's amazing how contemporary these discussions always are. But in our final minutes, I do want to ask about the phrase um, two-spirit. Julie, uh, I've heard you say it before, and um, it's something that I wish we could teach American children more about. What what does two-spirit mean? Two-spirit, basically, just really quickly, prior to the settlers, you know, coming to uh, North America, uh, a lot of indigenous nations recognized, you know, more than, you know, two uh, sexualities. So some of them uh, recognized, you know, up to five. And so a two-spirit in particular um, is a term that means someone who embodies both the male and female energy. And it's not so much like a sexual energy, but but a, a spiritual energy. So oftentimes in um, nations uh, who had, you know, two-spirited people, they would have roles in, in the society that were were like healers and the visionaries. And oftentimes, if there were children that were orphaned, oftentimes those two-spirited people were given the the, um, responsibility of of possibly raising those children. Um, And so it's something that, you know, I I identify with myself. And um, it's, it's, Simon, if you wanted to kind of jump in there, I know we don't have much time, but... Sure, please. Yeah, um, to be two-spirited is medicine. You, You carry medicine within you. Um, that would that means that you have certain responsibilities as well, just like any other holy person in any other spirituality or faith. So they have a spiritual role. And I was in Denver once, and there was this elder, a Dene elder, and he had really bad knees, and he was standing up, and the two-spirit was like, no, 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 don't stand up, because you blessed us by being here. I have to stand up. And so I, I don't think a lot of Christians understand how homosexuality, how two-spirit is considered a blessing, because just like you know Julie said, as a straight person, you can only see as a straight person, but you have the lens of both. To get both is medicine from the creator. And I think mm-hmm. that if we can get more non-natives, more especially Christians, to acknowledge our two-spirit uh, relatives, I think we'd be in a lot better place. And, I love yeah, that. And they're sacred. They're considered sacred in the nations. Um, and that was one of the first things that uh, the settlers tried to get rid of when they came here, is they saw, you know, these two-spirited, you know, people that were, you know, just cons- revered and they were sacred and they held such a, a important position in the nations that, you know, um, they wanted to get rid of that because it didn't follow yeah. the binary Christian, you know, male-female. 
So, but it just, honored it's it honored a, nature. It was honoring nature and yeah. honoring the creator. Yeah, mm -hmm. what they called uh, an abomination, we call a blessing. Right, I, sacred. I love that. Isn't and that beautiful? Just, I, you know what? Yes, for Native American Heritage Month, it's something that I think uh, white people, well, all people, need to appreciate and learn from. I, I love when you guys join us. I thank you so much for this segment. Simon, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? Well, you can go to Simon Said Take a Pick on Instagram. And yeah, I don't use the Twitter or whatever the hell they're calling it these days anymore. But yeah, <laughs> just Instagram, Simon Said Take a Pick. Right on. Julie, how do we follow you and keep up with you? Um, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Julie Franchella. Guys, thank you so much. And we're moving to a weekly, so I'm so glad you guys are uh, classing up our show still. We gotta go. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thea. I'm John Fugelsang. Keep it tuned to SiriusXM Progress. Peace. Peace.